Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW. Thank you for checking out the Top Docs Radio Show. On this week's episode, I sat down with an award-winning breast surgeon from the Atlanta area. Dr. April Speed joined me in the studio. We talked about what guided her into medicine and then on to focusing her clinical expertise in breast surgery. We talked about some of the options a patient has when surgery is required to treat particular cancers of the breast. We took a look at a technology that's available that allows surgeons like Dr. Speed to use a minimally invasive approach to successfully remove certain benign and even some small cancerous tumors from the breast and other areas of the body for that matter. It's called cryoablation. And in this procedure, the surgeon is utilizing very cold temperatures from a small super chilled probe to actually freeze the cancerous cells, causing them to die. And then they're simply reabsorbed by the body and destroyed. In this case, we're talking about the Visica procedure and in its newest iteration, the Visica 2 procedure. As it happens, Dr. Speed is one of but a handful of breast surgeons in the state of Georgia who offers this minimally invasive, highly effective treatment for certain benign and even some small cancerous tumors of the breast. And that's why I was so pleased to have Dr. Speed join me in the studio. I'm all about helping you to be better educated consumers of healthcare for you and your loved ones because what you don't know can truly have a significant impact on your outcome. Here's Dr. Speed talking about how she decided upon medicine as her career path, and she explains a little bit more about cryoablation. Check it out. I uh, actually did my general surgery training here at Grady Hospital right here in Atlanta, and while at Morehouse School of Medicine, I was introduced to the breast surgical side of care, and one of the things that fascinated me about breast surgery specifically that allowed me the opportunity to develop relationships with my patients you know, a lot of the general surgery patients and especially the trauma patients at a level one trauma center, you know, you only see those patients for the opportunity they're in front of you yeah. to save their life and you never see them again. And so I just like the continuity of care that I had the opportunity to be a part of in the Avon Breast Cancer Clinic. At Grady. And so I went on to MD Anderson Cancer Center and did a fellowship there. And it was a wonderful opportunity to have just a chance to focus exclusively on breast care, breast surgery, reconstruction, and also education and advocacy. And decided to come right back here to Atlanta. Crowd therapy is actually very exciting therapy. It's not new therapy, but we're now starting to use it in the treatment of breast tumors. So cryo means to freeze and ablation means to, to destroy tissue. And so it's a minimally invasive treatment that uses extremely low temperatures to actually freeze a tumor in the breast. And so for a lot of women, the options in the past have been if you have a lump in your breast and you've had a biopsy done and you see that it's benign, you're options are watchful waiting or surgical removal. Mm -hmm. And for some women, neither of those options are appropriate. For some, just the anxiety of waiting and wondering, is this going to change into something? Most of them won't. Most of them are just benign fibroadenomas, which is a type of tumor that's non-cancerous in the breast. And for another group of women, having it surgically removed was not a very viable option either because they had some reservation about an incision or anesthesia or downtime from work. And so they just needed some other alternative. 
give. And I think with the Vistica treatment system, it allows women just another option, but a very wonderful option for a few reasons, for convenience, comfort, and cosmesis. You can do in the comfort of your physician's office with minimal downtime, minimal scarring, no stitches to place or remove, and with the same result, which is the permanent removal or resolution of a lump in the breast. We use cryo in other parts of the body to ablate tumors, like in prostate and cervix and liver. So it's not a new concept in and of itself, but I think it's very fascinating that we're now utilizing this technology to benefit women in terms of their breast tumors. Stick around. I got the full interview with Dr. April Speed. Coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. I'm really pleased to have in studio Dr. April Speed. She's a breast surgeon from the Rockdale area here just outside of Atlanta. And um, I've known about Dr. Speed for a while. I'm really happy to have a chance to actually sit down with you and and get a chance to see you face to face and and talk to you a little bit. Actually, have a cool topic to talk about today. So thanks for taking some time to come by the studio. Well, thanks for having me. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about, of course, is breast cancer. That's going to be the main focus of our conversation today. And I know that particular facet of that is of late, there have been some advances in how we treat breast cancer that are trying to see if we can successfully remove the cancerous cells and at the same time preserve as much tissue as possible, minimally invasive procedures that are a little bit more easy to recover from. And and one of those techniques is cryoablation that in, in particular, one of the companies that provide technology that enables the physician to perform these procedures is Cineris, the makers of the Vesica 2 system. It's one of those minimally invasive procedures we're going to be talking about that allows physicians to treat benign and even some cancerous tumors. The Vesica 2 treatment system is FDA cleared for the ablation of cancerous or malignant tissue and benign tumors, it's been used in over 5,000 cryo-assisted surgeries and cryo-only procedures. It's been out there for a little while. It's been used in a number of patients. Clearly, that's a pretty good sample size for clinical research, for example. And you look at study sizes, that's a nice group of people to be able to say with some measure of confidence, this is safe and it works. Absolutely. Before we go too far into the various ways you approach treating breast cancer, talk a little about how you chose medicine as your career path. And then once you were in medicine, and going through your training, how did you decide to become a breast surgeon, focusing your expertise in that particular clinical area? I uh, actually did my general surgery training here at Grady Hospital, right here in Atlanta. And while at Morris School of Medicine, I was introduced to the breast surgical side of care. And one of the things that fascinated me about breast surgery specifically that allowed me the opportunity to develop relationships with my patients. You know, a lot of the general surgery patients, and especially the trauma patients at a level one trauma center, you know, you only see those patients for the opportunity they're in front of you to save their life and you never see them again. And so I just like the continuity of care that I had the opportunity to be a part of in the Avon Breast Cancer Clinic at Grady. And so I went on to MD Anderson Cancer Center and did a fellowship there. And it was a wonderful opportunity to have just a chance to focus exclusively on breast care, breast surgery, reconstruction, and also education and advocacy and decided to come right back here to Atlanta. And I saw that you were recognized with the ASCO National Diversity in Oncology Award. Talk about that. The American Society of Clinical Oncology is a, a nationally recognized organization that focuses on the clinical 
aspects of oncology, be it medical or surgical. And I'm a member of that organization. And I was just recognized for my work in some of the underserved communities. As you mentioned, I am on the east side of Atlanta in Rockdale County. And that's one of the counties that are particularly underserved when it comes to oncology care. And a lot of communities, not just unique to Atlanta, but oftentimes in smaller towns, these patients are having to drive either in town, i.e. coming to Atlanta, or even travel as far as MD Anderson to get oncology care. And so you can have great care right here in your backyard. And so the good thing is just when you do have specialized training to make sure you bring that work back home if you can. And I was really committed very early on to do that. And so I feel so fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to do what I planned to do many years ago, which is come back to Atlanta and give highly specialized breast surgical oncology care without patients having to travel. And I saw that something that you're going to be opening a Buckhead location. When is that going to happen? Is it in place now? Or? It's a, Yeah. So we're currently working on that now and looking to open in the spring of 2016. So we're really excited about that. I assume you do your surgeries for your Rockdale office patients at the Rockdale Medical Center. Where are you going to be operating for your Buckhead location patients? Likely Piedmont. I'm doing some cases there now, and it's been a great experience, so I'd like to continue to do that. You know, over the time that I've been doing the Top Docs radio show, we've had both patients and, and physicians over time talking about breast cancer, and I, I was pleased to get into some of the various ways that it can be treated, depending on the type of cancer that we're mm-hmm. talking about, for sure. But I was somewhat surprised to learn about the different choices that a woman has, in, in some cases anyway, depending on how early they catch it and the type, that there's different ways that they can go. With, and and have some measure to a certain extent of options that they can yes. choose from. Yes. So and many years ago, like? it was just it was just a one size fits all. You know, if your neighbor had breast cancer, if your aunt or your sister, you got the same treatment regardless right. of the type of breast cancer. But now we realize that there are multiple different types of breast cancer and we're learning that tumors are just as unique as you are as an individual. So we have ways in which to figure out what your tumor behavior is, what the tumor biology is and target that behavior, i.e. proteins, hormones, receptors, etc. in order to give a more patient-specific treatment that's different from what your neighbor may have, even if you may have the same diagnosis, the biology is different. So we're really trying to focus in on making the patient experience as unique as possible. And the more specific it is, oftentimes that translates into better outcomes, better survival, reduced recurrence. So it's very exciting time to be in breast surgery right now because of the variety of options that are available to patients. How much are you seeing in breast cancer? I know that there's a couple of different types of tests that they can do to give you a measure of idea of your likelihood of developing it, but in terms of genetic studies, how much do you see that coming into play? It would seem it's really on the rise and only going to continue to advance in terms of how specific they can make your treatment around genetic information that they take from the cancer cells. Mm -hmm. Now, genetics does play a big role, although the type that is affected by genetics is only about 5 to 10% Uh of the total new breast cancer diagnosis. However, what we're now targeting is, of course, you want to take genetics into consideration, but about 85% of women or more don't have a genetic component, but they do have proteins that can be targeted. They do have receptors that can be targeted. And so we use that technology, which is a lot more common in order to give them more targeted therapy. So again, genetics, I think, will always play a very key role in how we manage diseases, but we're 
moving more into the molecular and protein level of treatment for breast cancer patients, which is, again, very, very exciting because you can have better outcomes if you can specifically target what's unique about that tumor to have a better outcome. And it's not always about treatment because oftentimes you have to balance in medicine, as you know, with your medical background, you have to balance harm if it's more harmful versus helpful. So it also gives us some guidance as clinicians as to when therapy may be more harmful than helpful. So you can forego that if the tumor is not going to respond very well. Conversely, if those receptors show that it's going to have a a great response and it'll be more helpful than harmful, then we'll move forward in that direction. So what's the process like with regards to your breast surgeon clearly? So as we were sitting around before we went on the air, talked about the fact that you're the person that would be performing the biopsies, for example, lumpectomies, if that is sufficient or seems sufficient to be able to remove a worrisome lump. I mean, what's the process like determining what your course of action is going to be as a surgeon? Do we have to go down something that's more of a major surgical investment of effort and time? Or as we'll get to here in just a moment, some less invasive types of procedures. How do you determine what path we have to go down? Well, it's no one size fits all. And usually I'll start with the biopsy after the individual have had appropriate imaging. And the biopsy just gives us a histological or tissue confirmation of what this is. So we want to start out with what is it, number one. Number two, what is this behavior? What is its biology? And in clinical terms, that's more so grade, like how fast are the tumor cells growing? How different are those tumor cells from normal cells? What are some unique features or receptors that this tumor has that we can target? Once you get that information, then you determine, okay, will it be more helpful or not so helpful to have surgery first versus chemotherapy first? Will this individual be served well by having radiation after surgery? And typically those are in patients where they're foregoing a mastectomy and they have very early breast disease and they get what we call a lumpectomy or partial mastectomy. So you radiate the breast tissue that's left behind. And there's even been some advances in that line of treatment where you don't have to necessarily go to have treatment done every day for six weeks. There are therapies that allow you to have it twice a day, but you're done in about six days. With the same dose of radiation. So again, we've had a lot of advances in terms of how we're able to treat tumors in the breast. But in terms of that process, I'm so excited that it just really depends on the patient. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you had asked me that question, let's say five years ago, I would have given you basically the rundown of what most patients would experience, be it surgery, chemo, radiation, et cetera, and that algorithm wouldn't have much variation. But now it really depends on the patient, which is, again, is very exciting and very cerebral because you get a chance to communicate with your colleagues and the patients about what's going to be the best treatment option for them. So in a nutshell, it's no longer one size fits all which I think is fantastic. In your practice as a surgeon, how much have you seen pop culture in the news? Angelina Jolie, for example, goes for a double mastectomy. From what I understand, she had the cancer type that had a genetic component in terms of its likelihood of recurrence and that sort of thing. So there was some measure of logic in why she did that. But I'm curious, as a surgeon, do you see women being familiar with that and not necessarily equating her cancer type Mm -hmm. to the fact that she had breast cancer and she opted just for a double mastectomy, even though there wasn't cancer already? identified on the other side. Sure. We're, we're calling that in, in uh, the medical community like the uh, Angelina Jolie effect. Yeah. And it's been quite a phenomenon. And I think change starts with having a conversation. And what her case did was just open the conversation so that you can have a discussion with women that there are options 
and it's not the right option for every patient population. Like you mentioned, she had a type of breast cancer genetic mutation that increased her risk of not only breast cancer in her lifetime, but also ovarian cancer. So the goal of having a double mastectomy that's prophylactic, meaning in the absence of disease, the goal is to lower your risk. So you first have to see if your risk is indeed elevated, whereas most women are average risk to low risk. And again, hers was elevated risk because of that genetic mutation. So you need to have a discussion with your doctor about, okay, where do I fall on the spectrum of risk? Am I low risk or am I high risk or average risk? And then knowing that women have these options and knowing that there are different variations to when you can even consider it, you're able to have that conversation. Whereas before the highly publicized case of Angelina Jolie, oftentimes women would shy away about asking about prophylactic mastectomy or asking about having genetic testing done. Mm -hmm. And it's also important to have a genetic counselor on board prior to genetic testing and after genetic testing, because sometimes what we're finding is those that don't carry the gene oftentimes warrant more of a discussion because they want to know what does this mean? Mm -hmm. Or if they have a, a genetic mutation of undetermined clinical significance, meaning, well, we don't see your typical BRC1 or 2, which is a breast cancer genes 1 and 2 that a lot of people are familiar with, but they have a mutation, but we d- we're not aware of what that mutation means yet, which can be very frustrating for a lot of women. So I think she did a great service to the community in terms of breast cancer education because it engaged us in a conversation. It gave you the chance for patients to come in with questions, and I'm sure it made them start digging around. Absolutely. Uh, obviously, the internet's It's both a bane and a boon as far as (laughs) that kind of thing, because you can clearly get information from places that really aren't the best sources. But I was just kind of curious because I assumed that many women saw that. And then when they were told we found something that immediately they might be jumping to, well, geez, I've got to do what she did. Sure. And impacting that. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so that's why you have to make sure you're very clear in the beginning in terms of the goal of prophylactic mastectomies or mastectomies in the absence of the disease is risk reduction. And for some women, they just need anxiety reduction. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean in a derogatory sort of way, but sure. a lot of women just have anxiety. They may not have the breast cancer gene, but they've watched their neighbor die of breast cancer, their really close friend. And just the thought of it is just very emotionally consuming. They that's right. Just it's get a, a disruptor of your sure. quality of life for, mm-hmm. for sure if you're experiencing anxiety around mm-hmm. what's going to happen to me and the uncertainty around that. So having a measure of confidence mm-hmm. that the course that we're choosing is very very highly likely. And nowadays, from what I understand, particularly when you catch things early, that with breast cancer, the the success rates are actually quite high. Uh, Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I I always live by the mantra and and sharing this with my patient is, you know, early detection still means better protection. So I'm a huge proponent of just catching things early so you can have, you know, just be more empowered to make the appropriate decisions. Now, I'm really curious. That that reminds me of a piece of news that came out. I think it was around spring or summer. Sure. The big you don't need to get a mammogram until you're 50. I think that's what they're saying. They're moving it back because the point being, we find so many, It's I guess it's online with what you see in prostate cancer as well. The tests are uncovering cancers that we wouldn't necessarily treat and it's causing anxiety sure. in those people that are told you have a finding, but we don't necessarily think we need to treat it. So it's a waste of time. Yes. I, 
But I'm like, well, what if I'm one of those women that I'm in my 30s and I would benefit from a study because I'm in in that higher risk population. Mm -hmm. You're going to make me wait until I'm potentially stage four. And to your (laughs) and to that very point, and I know uh, several patients of my own, but nationally, just thousands of women who would if they had used that guideline, get your screening mammogram starting at the age of 50 instead of 40 that would have had cancer undiagnosed at, at an early stage. And so. So again, I understand the U.S. Preventive Task Force position on and that you want to lower anxiety, but for a lot of women that fall into the minority mm-hmm. of the category, but still their lives are still very significant. And we just have to balance that study and understand that guidelines are not mandates. So it's supposed to be designed to give us a roadmap that will be beneficial for most women. But again, it's no one size fits all. So if you feel that there's something not right, you still can ask for that mammogram, even if you're not within the age, the minimum age requirement to have that mammogram done. Because again, that would be a diagnostic, not a screening. And that's one of the things I want to be clear with women. Screening is having a mammogram in the absence of any problems, in the absence of a lump in the breast. So you don't necessarily have to wait if you actively have a concern going on. You let your physician know right away and you'll have what we call a diagnostic mammogram and that's age independent. I mean, it doesn't matter what your age is. So now, from what I understand, I could be wrong because I always try as much as possible to guide people towards things that their insurance will actually cover, though I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's instances where it might make sense to invest even if you have to come out of pocket based Mm -hmm. on your risk. But aren't there some women, if they have, particularly I think the genetic predisposition, the test has been done and and you you're one of those people that has that genetic predisposition to that smaller subset of cancers that would be able to go and get, even if they are less than 40, for example, might be able to get a mammogram. Sure. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. So there are some women that fall in that what we call high risk category mm-hmm. where it, it will be covered. And then there are a lot of programs around the city that a lot of women aren't aware of. I'm on the board for the Susan Coleman Foundation Greater Atlanta, and a lot of the money raised goes to cover mammograms at low cost or no cost at a lot of the breast imaging centers right here in Atlanta. Women just need to be aware of it so they can ask about it. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's not necessarily contingent upon income. So it's still important to communicate at the imaging center if your insurance company may not cover it because you don't meet the criteria or the guidelines to say, hey, what programs can you offer so I can get this mammogram done at low cost or no cost? So just, again, engage that conversation. And you'll be really surprised that there's a lot of organizations that are within the hospital that are designed just to do that. We've been talking with breast cancer specialist surgeon, Dr. April Speed, learning about how she got into medicine and why she ultimately chose to focus her career on breast cancer treatment and learning a little bit about some of the choices that women have in terms of the surgical options and so forth. But obviously, one of the things, a trend in healthcare, and I think it's a good one, is exploring ways that we can minimize the extent of surgery, even avoid it altogether, Mm -hmm. if if at all possible. And that was part of our conversation for today was looking at relatively recent, it's been out for a few years now, but in the overall scheme of things, relatively recent in the last 10 years or so, the development of cryotherapy to treat certain cancers. And in this case, I guess around 2001, the vesica procedure was 
was created that was cryoablation for fibroadenomas. Mm-hmm. And they've now, as we mentioned at the jump of the show, done the, this type of procedure on over 5,000 patients. Talk a little bit about what we're talking about in cryotherapy and as it relates to your, your breast cancer patients you're dealing with. Cryotherapy is actually very exciting therapy. It's not new therapy, but we're now starting to use it in the treatment of breast tumors. So cryo means to freeze and ablation means to, to destroy tissue. And so it's a minimally invasive treatment that uses extremely low temperatures to actually freeze a tumor in the breast. And so for a lot of women, the options in the past have been if you have a lump in your breast and you've had a biopsy done and you see that it's benign, you're options are watchful waiting or surgical removal. Mm -hmm. And for some women, neither of those options are appropriate. For some, just the anxiety of waiting and wondering, is this going to change into something? Most of them won't. Most of them are just benign fibroadenomas, which is a type of tumor that's non-cancerous in the breast. And for another group of women, having it surgically removed was not a very viable option either because they had some reservation about an incision or anesthesia or downtime from work. And so they just needed some other alternative. And I think with the Vesica treatment system, it allows women just another option, but a very wonderful option for a few reasons, for convenience, comfort, and cosmesis. You can do in the comfort of your physician's office with minimal downtime, minimal scarring, no stitches to place or remove, and with the same result, which is the permanent removal or resolution of a lump in the breast. With the Visica treatment system, we go by the American Society of Breast Surgeons guidelines. And so with the guidelines, most women who have these lumps in the breast fit the criteria for it. Number one, it has to be visualized by ultrasound, meaning it has to be at least large enough to be seen on an ultrasound, which is similar to a sonogram you may get when you're expecting to visualize a fetus. Two, the lump has to have a biopsy done at some point before treatment because you want to confirm that it is indeed a breast tumor. And then very lastly, under four centimeters in size. Okay. uh, Because sometimes there may be size restrictions that may be better served with surgical removal. And so those are the guidelines that are used. And again, most women fit those guidelines. So how is the procedure conducted? Is it an image-guided procedure that's using maybe a a needle or or some other device to freeze the undesired tissue? Yes. And I actually had to describe this to my daughter. I told us like Disney's frozen. So you have the ability <laughs> to just, which are one, just freeze things. And so it's done under image guidance because you want to be able to see the lump because some lumps you may not be able to feel depending on the depth that they are inside the breast. You have an ultrasound and then liquid nitrogen is used not in the breast, but to freeze the probe to lower the temperature of the probe. And the probe is about the size of a, a stirring straw that you would use for, let's say, coffee. Mm. And so it requires just a small nick in the skin after appropriate local anesthesia. Okay. And then you just freeze for several minutes and then you thaw for several minutes, freeze and then thaw. So it's a freeze-thaw cycle. And most tumors are going to be less than four centimeters because that's the criteria. So at most, you're talking about a 20-minute procedure. I did a procedure the other day using the Visica treatment system and it took 10 minutes because the freeze thaw cycle was pretty short because the tumor was fairly small. And so again, depending on the size of the tumor, it may require a little bit longer time, but about 20 minutes is probably about the highest and the average is about 12 minutes. How do you evaluate your effectiveness once you've done the procedure? How do you know you got all you needed to get? What happens is the tumor is in the breast and you can literally see the ball of ice surrounding the tumor. And I usually will bring patients back in about six months and re-image them to see where are we with the resolution 
resolution because it's not something that necessarily your body will break down immediately. Again, no two patients are alike. So it can be as short as three months or take as long as nine months to a year, depending on the size of the tumor and your specific tissue type. So at the time, I can evaluate in real time to make sure I can see it in two dimensions and that the freezer ball is around the entire lump. And then several months later, I bring them back and re-image. And most of those patients, you can see the absorption because your body will just break it down. Mm -hmm. It recognizes the freezing ball as a foreign body. And so it just uses the body's natural defenses or natural response to anything that's foreign, oftentimes it will attack it or try to dissolve it and then mm-hmm. it's absorbed. So I think that's quite a clever concept. And we use cryo in other parts of the body to ablate tumors like in prostate and cervix and liver. So it's not a new concept in and of itself, but I think it's very fascinating that we're now utilizing this technology to benefit women in terms of their breast tumors. So as it relates to the breast tissue, are there other conditions or situations that you would utilize the cryotherapy such as is the Visica treatment system to treat? There are some clinical trials that are ongoing. One is called the FROST trial, the F-R-O-S-T, that Visica treatment system is being used for, and those are for cancerous tumors in very select groups of women. These tumors are usually very small. The criteria is 1.5 centimeters. Also, the women have to be 50 or older. And the reason why there's an age restriction is because oftentimes when tumors are found, let's say, that are cancerous or malignant in your 30s, 40s, et cetera, what we call premenopausal breast mm-hmm. cancer, those oftentimes are associated with a genetic component or more aggressive types of diseases. So it wouldn't be very wise to use that therapy in those groups of women, but in select women, i.e. over 50 tumors less than 1.5 centimeters, it's currently being investigated to be able to use those to ablate those cancers altogether. And it doesn't mean that patients will have to forego other aspects of treatment. This is just from the surgical side. So if they're a candidate to have, let's say, radiation after surgery or after the Visica cryoablation therapy, they will still have the radiation. If their medical oncologist recommends chemotherapy, they will still have that chemotherapy. This system is designed to give them a minimally invasive surgical option. For a lot of women, it's not just a matter of, let's say, minimizing the incision or cosmesis. For some, it's tolerating anesthesia anesthesia. And all those anesthesia can be very safe and effective. And the majority of it is. But you have some women that may have heart disease, congestive heart failure, Mm -hmm. uncontrolled conditions that make it very dangerous, almost prohibitive to undergo anesthesia. But should these women not have the opportunity to have a surgical procedure done because their hearts aren't healthy enough to tolerate the physiological changes that anesthesia oftentimes will bring about. I mean, I have a patient right now that I'm waiting to get cardiac clearance to take it to surgery for cancer, and it's not a very large tumor. It's a fairly small tumor, but again, because of her cardiac issues, we're having to make sure that's teased out before she can undergo surgical intervention. And so oftentimes we'll be able to save us some time and maybe even have better outcomes if we're able to non-surgically ablate these tumors and get on with the rest of their treatment. I would assume, based on what you were saying, since you can do it in the office, Mm-hmm. Recovering from this procedure is just, I might, I assume maybe possibly, maybe not, but have just a mild soreness perhaps after, if, uh, if that at all. Some women describe it as just having like frostbite. It just feel a little cold in the breast. Yeah. And for a lot of women, that's soothing because the coldness kind of dampens any discomfort they may have. But that's the most that I've heard women share with me is they feel cold in the breast or like a frostbite type of feel. Or if like you eat an ice cream and kind of get that brain freeze. But 
women tolerate it very well. You don't necessarily need a family member or friend to accompany you because it's a local anesthetic. I've had several patients go back to work or school that day. It's been a good option for adolescents as well. And so a lot of them can go back to school in the afternoon. The parents are thrilled about that, but sometimes the kids want to pass. <laughs> oh, dang it, I want to go home and have to stay on the back yeah. and watching TV for the rest yeah. of the day. How widely available in the community is access to a minimally invasive procedure like the Visica system that you're talking about. You're talking about the fact that your office offers it, but I would assume that it's not necessarily the case everywhere. So I'm sure it's probably something going in that the woman going to a physician might want to talk about. Is this available to me? How, Absolutely. Where, where can I go get it? Yeah. And so it's not as widely available as it should be, specifically in the region of the South and Southeast. It's very widely available and covered by insurance companies on the West Coast, uh, in the North and North northeast quarter of our countries, but we're finding a disparity in the south and southeast, similar to what we may see for other cutting edge medical technology. Sometimes it takes us a little bit longer to get on board. And so you'll just have to see if it's covered by your insurance company, first and foremost. And oftentimes in your clinician's office, they can do what we call prior approval or call your insurance company on your behalf to see whether or not it would be covered. So I know it's less than five of us in the state, I think, that do mm-hmm. cryoblation in the breast currently. So I'm so glad that you had me on to engage awareness and engage a conversation, especially with it not being October. It, yeah. It's so, you know, yeah, nobody so, wants uh, to talk about breast cancer except yeah, for me. So, you know? so I'm, I'm just so thrilled that you would do this outside of October because women that live with breast cancer and breast diseases, they deal with this year round, 365 days a year, seven days a week. And so to raise awareness in January, I think is very admirable. So again, thank you <laughs> so much well, for you know, one of the having things, me on to discuss it. A big thing for me is as it relates to our patients in the community that that check out our show is helping them to be a better advocate, a smarter consumer, a more educated consumer, not smarter, but more mm-hmm. educated consumer about what's available to them. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to know how available is it around here? Because I'm sure fibroadenoma, cancer is a little bit out of my, my wheelhouse in terms of my clinical expertise. It was all about cardiovascular care. So mm-hmm. I'm not positive, you know, you can talk to how frequently ladies are being diagnosed with fibroadenomas. I would assume that it's quite a few. Yes, it's quite a few. For and sure. probably as many or more than cancer, I would assume. Yes. So it's about 80% in your lifetime will have some sort of benign appearing lump in the breasts, which is quite significant. And so just to know that there are other options yeah. than just having to have it surgically removed or the, yes. having the pain of watchful waiting for right. some women, it's, it can be very And that's why I wanted wait. to ask that question because I want for our folks out there who are checking this out, maybe they're a lady who either has some measure of risk of breast cancer in their uh, in their family history, or perhaps they've been told that you're dealing with a fibroadenoma. Surely everybody's got friends, you know, and, and so being able to share this information with them so that someone can say, ask a physician that they're dealing with right now, I know this is a fibroadenoma. Do you have access to the minimally invasive vesica procedure? Because I know it's available. So I know it's in the community and be able to ask about it so that they can get access to it. Because clearly, as you talked about going in for a 10 or 20 minute procedure in a physician's office is a radically different experience from a recovery perspective, but also mm-hmm. from a financial sure. and time commitment to, to recovery from a surgery and dealing with the risk, as you mentioned, of general anesthetic. I worked in recovery room and took care of plenty of lumpectomy patients mm-hmm. coming out of general anesthesia. Sure. So clearly, if you can go in and you just have a little local anesthesia shot and the lump is taken care of, that's obviously a great way to go. Yeah. And it's actually a lot more cost conservative for the patient and for the insurance company to have it done in the office. 
been in surgery. As obviously a, a surgeon who is positioning herself on the front edge of available technology and making that available to your patients, when you, are there some other developments emerging that when you see them as a physician that encourage you that they show some promise and that could really begin to shape even further the treatment of breast cancer as you see it? Oh, sure. I think in terms of like technologies coming down the pike, it's again, the visco treatment system for like benign and hopefully some cancerous tumors as well will be more prominent. But I think what's happening is that we are having technology that will lend itself to just more minimally invasive procedures and minimally invasive treatments, but also more patient-specific treatment as well. I know there's one technology, it's Oncoplex DX, which I've used several times, and it just, again, looks at proteins of the breast tumor that's cancerous, but it gives you the opportunity to know which chemotherapy will be more helpful versus harmful, which chemo is more likely to work versus not. Another treatment that's not necessarily new, but we're seeing a more utilization of, and that's partial breast radiation or brachotherapy. And that's where you still get radiation, but it's truncated over a shorter period of time. Instead of getting the treatment every day for six weeks, you can get a similar dose over six days. And again, that allows women to just get on to the business of taking care of their families themselves, getting back to their careers, where they work inside the home or outside the home, but just getting back to living. I think we should just treat it, beat it, move on. And with the new technologies coming down the pike, it gives women options. It gives more patient-specific opportunities to have better outcomes. And that translates into longevity. So again, I'm just glad that you're having this conversation to get patients as consumers back in the driver's seat of their health. So I thank you again for doing that. Well, I've really enjoyed having a chance to sit down with you and talk about both your practice and about this cool technology. I I really enjoy being able to help people understand about some of the different ways that they can successfully treat whatever it is they're dealing with, in this case, fibroadenomas of the breast, without having to go through a surgery and to be able to have a great deal of confidence. From what I understand, it's a very effective treatment of Mm -hmm. the fibroadenoma in the breast. And so that folks can know to ask about Sure. What's available to me? Because so many times, I mean, it's, I think it's an understandable thing. We go to our doctor and whatever they tell us, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And maybe that particular physician hasn't been exposed yet to the now available treatment modality that we're talking about. They wouldn't know to tell you necessarily. Absolutely. So having questions and being armed with information, I think is very, very important these days for our patients. So I'm really happy to be able to talk to them about that. If you're wanting more information about the Visica procedure, it's it's made by a company called Sonaris, S-A-N-A-R-U-S. And uh, Visica is V-I-S-I-C-A, the Visica procedure. And so you can find some information. I know there's some videos out there that mm-hmm. talk uh, in depth about what the, what the device is looking like and what it's doing. So you can learn more about that. And then of course, if you want more information about Dr. Speed, where do they go to uh, link up with you and your practice to learn more about being seen by you? Sure. Just www.draprilspeed.com. Well, that's pretty easy. Facebook as well and Twitter. And if you're listening to us on the podcast and you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast on iTunes. Make sure you subscribe to us so that you can be introduced each week to the guests that we have on the show. We're constantly having healthcare experts talking about things that do either help your medical practice or for folks who would be a patient or perhaps one of their loved ones would be a patient. We'll help you be better educated consumers of 
of healthcare for you and your loved ones. So we hope that you subscribe to us to stay up with all the cool people that we're bringing to you here in the studio. Dr. Speedman, thanks so much for coming over here and uh, sitting with us in the studio. I was really pleased to find out you were local. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and uh, make sure you go out and link up with Dr. April Speed on her website. Check her out on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Tie in with her and you'll get exposed to additional information that she's sharing with her communities. And make sure you turn around and share this information with your social network so you might be able to put some information in the hands of someone you care about that makes a difference in their life. So we hope that you do that. And for all the folks that made us a part of their day today, I want to say thanks so much. We really appreciate you making time to check us out. Get with us at the same time, same place next week. 